been away on holidays for the last couple of um, weeks, and um, it's nice to be back home. I miss you guys. We, yeah, it's nice to be home, even though it is soaking wet, but it's all good. Um, so in term four, we're basically starting term four. I know it's the last weekend of the holidays, but um, we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel together. Now, Daniel's an Old Testament book, and we, we tend to look at about one Old Testament book every year. It's a little bit difficult to understand, like Bob said. You did say that, didn't you? Like one of those suits, but we can, um, we'll get it on right. We'll get all the buttons done up with it. And uh, there's a lot of richness in the book of Daniel. So um, it is one of those books that has some of those more well-known and slightly older when Bob tells them Sunday school stories about lion's dens and fiery furnaces and all those kind of things. But... There's a lot in Daniel. Um, one of the preachers that I like to listen to says that if you rake the grass, you'll get leaves. But if you dig down deep, you'll get gold and you'll get gemstones. So we're going to dig deep into Daniel and, and really get a good understanding of, um, of a lot of things, a lot of truths about who God is. Now, as a part of the Metro course, which is... Um, Presbyterian Church thing that you can read about in that Pulse magazine that appears out the front um, every month. Um, there's a lot about the Metro program. That's actually what I'm doing. And um, as a part of that, I'm about to finish that at the end of this year. But as a part of that, I've got to preach a series of sermons. So I'm preaching today and I'm going to be preaching the next three Sundays after this. So please be gracious. Please keep coming, even though <laughs> you're only listening to me. Um, I promise that I'll do my best, and um, yeah. And one of the good things is is Daniel's got 12 chapters, um, and I encourage you to actually go home and read through the whole thing because it'll help you to get a better understanding of it. But if you do read through the whole thing, you'll notice that the first six chapters are stories about Daniel and his friends um, and the things that they do and how God works in that. And then the last six chapters are kind of apocalyptic sounding things, a bit like reading Revelations, if you've read that part of the New Testament, and it's pretty full on, that's where Paul takes over, so I'm, I get the easier part, I think, and which is a good thing. Um, yeah, but it would be a helpful thing if you read through the book of Daniel. For the most part, at Bible study this term, we're going to be doing this Bible study book on it. This is the same, um, I guess it's the same brand as the one we did on Romans, and these... Uh, seven bucks each so you might decide that you just want one between a couple or you might want one each or something like that they'll be out in the foyer now there's a new arrangement this is i'm still giving announcements here there's a new arrangement with these um they you've got to give the money to your bible study leader and if you're a bible study leader you then got to give the money on to um steve trust him who's the treasurer okay is that cool that message is clear i'll put there i'll put there's a whole box of these I'll put them out in the front um, room to uh, take on your way out. And you can start this week. Bible study groups can get back underway this week. Okay, I think that's all the announcements out of the way. Now, um, Graham Darwin was meant to read this morning, but poor bloke's got some, something funky going on with his mouth, with his teeth. So he can't be here and can't read. So I'm going to do my... Um, my trick, which I do in scripture class, and can I have a volunteer to come and read the Bible for us today? Jack. Now, you're reading from the Old Testament, so there's funny names, but we'll get you up here and do your best. It's Daniel chapter 1. It's the whole chapter. 
There's 21 verses and they'll be up on the screen. Uh, <coughs> Daniel's training in Babylon. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of the God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. And then the king ordered Aphenus, king of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Michael, Azaria, and the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Michel, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the official had appointed over Daniel, Ananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, please test your servant for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice of food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Michael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters of his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first king of Sirius. I'm going to pray and then we'll get into it. 
Father, we do thank and praise you for the opportunity to be here this morning, Lord, to be dry and out of the rain, and Lord, to be here understanding who you are, understanding Jesus and the great gift that he's um, given us of his own life. Lord, we just thank you for your word that guides us and helps us to understand all things about you. And we just ask this morning that you'd help us by your spirit, Lord, the spirit that's so powerful that brought Jesus back from the dead, Lord, that that same spirit would be at work in us. Lord, helping us to understand this, helping us to pay attention when we get distracted, helping us to understand how this applies to how we relate to you and each other and to all the people around us and how we live our lives. Lord, we ask this by your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last term um, we preached on Romans. And in the book of Romans, there's a particular verse that gives us gives a lot of Christians an extreme amount of comfort. And it's Romans 8.28, which is we only heard from a couple of weeks ago. So I'll just read it for you again. But, um, yeah, this is a, a verse that gives great encouragement to a lot of Christians. It says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, what Paul, the the writer of the letter of Romans, writes here is a truth that is full of encouragement to Christians. And the truth in that is that God is a sovereign God. Big word, but and it's a big word that we probably use, like Bob was saying, but sovereign means that he's the God that's in control of what's going on. He's in control of all that happens. It means that everything has a purpose. I mean, I know that that's a little bit of a cliche. We often say, oh, well, it probably happened for a reason. But in, in Scripture, in this, it's actually true that God has a purpose in the things that he lets happen to us. And his purpose, actually, in the lives of Christians, this verse tells us, is to bring about good. So God has a purpose, and if you're a Christian, it's to work things out for your good. It's a promise that if you belong to God because you're forgiven by Jesus, that you know that God's been causing all circumstances so that they'll work out for your benefit. Now, this isn't talking about an earthly benefit, and there are preachers that will say things like that. It's not saying that we're going to have bottomless riches or we're going to have endless health or endless good health. But it works out to give us what is truly good for us. And we know from other parts of the Bible that that's being more and more like Jesus. For us to be more and more like Jesus is the goodness that God intends for us. And the comfort for us is knowing that God has it all worked out. That God has it sorted. We may not know the detail, but we know that he will bring about good. Now, just this week, I went to the movies. I went and saw a film called Tomorrow When the War Began. Has anyone gone and seen that? Cool. Well, the problem, the reason that probably most of you haven't is because it's based on a book that's often read to teenagers. And particularly if you went to school in the 90s, you had it probably read to you or was part of your curriculum. But basically, it's an Australian book. And it's about, um, basically, we get invaded by, it looks like Indonesia, but you don't, can't really tell who it is, but I'm pretty sure that's who they imply who it is. And these kids are off camping and they come back and they found that, that their town's been invaded and then they turn into like guerrilla warfare people and try and, um, you know, take back their town. But I was sitting there and I was watching it and I, I'm kind of funny with movies. Some movies I like, some movies I don't like. 
And this movie was actually scaring me. I was actually getting scared. Tara probably didn't realise because I hit it well, but I was getting scared. But I took, I took comfort in actually knowing, because I'd read the book before, I'd read it at school, and I knew how it finished. And knowing how it finished, actually, you know, I was kind of like, oh, is this person going to die? Well, I actually knew that they don't die. And I actually needed to know the end. Some people are like, oh, don't tell me the ending. You're going to spoil it. Sorry, I've probably just spoiled it for all of you anyway. But you're probably not going to see it, so I don't care that much. But, but knowing the ending actually helps us to understand, you know, the good that's coming. Now, with Daniel, we sit on this side of what Jesus did. And we're kind of in that situation. And... What we can see, we can look back on Daniel's story and the things that happened to him and we actually get a glimpse of how God was in control the whole time through what was happening. Now, the verse from Romans 8, it is easy to understand given that we understand Jesus and who he was and what he did. But Daniel, like we've said, is an Old Testament book. And so to actually understand it properly, we need to understand the Old Testament story to understand what Daniel is on about. So let's look back at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. It should come up there. Okay. Um, it says this. In the third year of the reign of jo- jo- That's him. The king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, which is a much cooler name and easier to remember, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. You come here and you meet two kings and two nations. We've got King Funny Name or Jehoiakim. Now I still can't get it right, but he he comes out of the picture, so I don't need to learn it. And Nebuchadnezzar. We've got these two kings. One's king over Judah, and the other's king over Babylon. And one takes over the other. But to properly understand this book, we need to actually understand the bigger story of the Bible. Otherwise, we'd just end up treating this book like it's just a bunch of moral stories that we can get good morals out of and not really understand what's going on. The question is, who are these nations? Who are these kings? And what's the big story? Well, we've got a bit of a chart, which is the big story of the Bible. And where I've put that circle is about where this is happening, okay? But this chart actually helps us to understand the whole story of the Bible as we read it. So you start with Genesis 1. Chapter 1, where God makes the world, 1 and 2 makes people, it's all good. Genesis 3, it all goes bad. When they sin, they reject God. And then it keeps going. We've got, um, eventually comes through Noah, comes through a few other guys, and we get to Abraham, who God makes three really important promises to. And if you understand these promises properly, it's really the key to understanding the whole Old Testament. But basically, God makes this promise to Abraham. If you flick one slide, it might be a bit bigger. God makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to make Abraham's descendants a people. They're going to be a people who belong to God. He promises three things to them. He promises them that they'll have their own land, which we end up calling the promised land. He promises that they'll be a great nation, so a big, powerful nation. And finally... And then the most important promise is that God's going to bless them and look after them. He's going to show grace and mercy to them. And not only that, but he's going to use them to be a blessing to the nations around them, the nations that don't know God. There's a good way to express this, and it's from a guy called um, Graham Goldsworthy who writes a lot about this, but he says that they were to be God's people in God's place under God's rule. 
and I've added to it, and they'd be there blessing God's world. So God makes a promise to Abraham that all his descendants are going to be God's people. He's going to put them in his place. They're going to live under his rule, and they're going to bless people. They're going to bless the nations around them. Now, the story goes on. We get the people end up in Egypt, and then we get to Moses and the Exodus, and they're all in Egypt. Moses is risen up as their leader, and God takes his people out of slavery. So he's got a big people, but they're not in a land, and he takes them to a land. And from Exodus, in your Bible, through to the book of Joshua, what you read about is you read about how God takes his people and establishes them in a land. So they're God's people in God's place, and they are living under God's rule. And God's rule is actually through judges that he sends along. And they're there, they're telling the people what to do, they're helping them to live the way that God wants them to, basically. Now, it starts to go pear-shaped, and they, they decide that they want to be like the other nations, and they want a king. And so then you hear about King Saul. He's the first king that they have. He's a dodgy king, doesn't care about God. And then we end up with the great King David. Now, this part of the Bible, which is up there, David and then King Solomon after, this is kind of like where we look at the Old Testament. We see it looks like God's promises have all been fulfilled, that they're God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, living there, being the people that God wanted them to be. Now, David is set up and his descendants are set up as the ones who reign as kings, okay? So he's like a a royal line, if you like. And that's how it's set up. And it all looks good. But then some of the kings that come along after these guys, and it actually starts with King Solomon, are dodgy. They don't care about God. They don't do the job that they're meant to do. And things go pear-shaped. And we look at the next part of it. And what happens is that this great kingdom splits in two. It actually splits this way because it goes north and south. Okay? So Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now Daniel, Daniel's, oh sorry, David, David's kingly line, royal line, keeps ruling over Judah. And Judah is the, is the part of um, the part or the, the kingdom where that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians take over. So we're back at Daniel chapter 1 now, where we've got Joachim, who's now the king over Judah, okay, over this side of the picture. And if we go one more, we'll see that they're exiled into this place called Babylon. So over a couple of times, um, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, raids the promised land, and takes God's people, splits them up, and takes them back to his own land. So they're, they're God's people, but they're not in God's land anymore. And that's exactly where we are in this. Now, knowing this actually is really important because we need to understand this. Otherwise, we can't really understand Daniel's situation. See, Daniel was one of these young people, young, young um, Israelite guys living in the kingdom of Judah, and his country has been invaded... And he's been taken off in exile by this evil king Nebuchadnezzar into this place called Babylon. Let's picture for a minute what that would be like. He would have been young. And everything that he's known has just been invaded. Now, Judah, this happens to Judah for a reason. Because although the kingdom had split, the, the kings had just got worse and worse and worse. And we find out about this king 
King Joachim, the king of Judah, in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 36 and 37. This will come up on your screen. But it tells us that Joachim was 25 years old when he became a king and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. His mother's name was Zebediah, the daughter of Padiah. She was from Rumah. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. So just like the kings before him, this king who was in charge of Judah had failed to lead God's people. He'd failed to follow God. He'd failed to love God. It was a turnaround from the time of King David. David was described as a king that was after God's own heart. He cared about God. He cared about what God was on about. But this king was dodgy. He didn't care about God. He was, he was all puffed up on the power of being king. He'd rejected God completely. And so what we see happening is King Nebuchadnezzar coming to invade. But we're told there that God doesn't protect his people. And he does it. He chooses not to protect them for a reason. Um, in the third year of the reign of Joachim, king of Judah, this is verse 1 of Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord, the Lord God, delivered Joachim, king of Judah, into his hand. So you see there in verse 2 that God doesn't protect his people and he lets them get taken away. You see, God knows the good purposes that he has for his people facing that situation. He lets it happen. To be led by ungodly kings like this king of Judah, Jehoiakim, is not a good thing for his people. Now, it might seem like it's a horrible thing for his people to be invaded and taken away as exiles, but to be ruled by a dodgy king who doesn't care about God, well, that's actually a worse thing. See, God turns his face away. He deliberately doesn't deliver them from the hand of the Babylonians. And so they're taken into exile. And so we ask, why? Why does God let this happen? What are God's purposes? Has he just stopped caring about them? And what we'll find out is, no, he doesn't stop caring about them. If you read in in the Bible, the book of Lamentations, and um, just look for the one that looks like Lemmington's in your contents and you'll find it it's a small book and if you read psalm 137 as well what you'll see is you'll see the way that god's people respond to what goes on here and when you read those you actually see that all these people who've been led by this dodgy king and their hearts have turned away from god actually are turned back around through going through this process of being in exile and being invaded and not being the great nation they once were. God actually uses that to draw their hearts back to himself. It's a horrible situation, but it's what it takes to get through the stubbornness of their heart. God actually grows the hearts of the people through that. So I encourage you to read those two parts. And through reading the whole of the Old Testament, you can follow that kind of story. But what the book of Daniel does is it doesn't tell us the whole story about the whole people, but it focuses in, it focuses the big story Um, onto a small story about Daniel and his three friends. Now we'll read about them in verse 6 to 7. It says this, Among all these people, all these people from Judah, among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, 
to Mishel, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Okay? So these guys are given new names. They're taken in as a part of, of um, the Babylonian people. And the story of Daniel focuses on these guys and what God does. Okay, so that's where our focus is going to be. Now, within the setting of the kingdom of Judah, being taken into exile, we've got the focus on Daniel. And it's significant that it doesn't just focus on Daniel, but it focuses on his friends as well. And I'll tell you why it's significant. It's because they're facing oppression, they're facing, they're in exile, they're facing persecution, they're facing all these hardships that they haven't known before. But it's not just Daniel there by himself. He's actually there with three other guys. Makes an awesome foursome. And they form a community, a community that are sticking together. So it's not Daniel trying to be Lone Ranger hero in this story, but he's there and they're relying on one another. That's really significant. Now, a lot can be drawn out by how they live as aliens in this foreign land, uh, this land that doesn't worship or care about their God. But what this book will ultimately show us is the way that God works in all things, like that verse from Romans promises, how God works in all things for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. And, you know, isn't this ultimately our situation when you think about it? The situation that these guys are in, can you see how it's our situation as well? See, as Christians, we're trying to live for Jesus in response to what he's done for us. But we're doing that in a land and a world that just doesn't get it. We live in a world. We live amongst families. We live amongst people who don't understand God don't understand Jesus and what he's done. And we're a bit like these guys. As we look forward in Daniel, we see that these guys are asked over and over to compromise their faith, to forget about certain things, to ignore God at certain points. I don't know about you, but that's my experience of the Christian life. I'm challenged by those things on a daily basis to give away certain things, to not take certain parts of it all that seriously. And so I hope that as we look at Daniel, that we do draw a lead out of it. Can I challenge you as you look at Daniel, that you have your eyes open to the world that you live in, that you're looking and and aware of the, the challenges that are being thrown at you, the things that are thrown at you that that could cause you to doubt God or that could cause you to to you know just compromise on a little part what are the things that in your life that demand your worship that ask you to worship them what are the things that stop you trusting in what jesus has done what stops you from seeing the great importance of jesus in your own life and as you become aware of these these things that cause you doubt or worry or misfocus then this is how we should deal with it we need to talk to each other And we need to pray about it. These guys were a community of people living for God in this foreign place. And that's at the very heart of what we're to be doing as church. To be living as a community that that doesn't just pretend like everything's okay, but we call things for what they are. We call things in our own life for what they are. And we pray for one another about it. Out of love, out of grace out of care and concern for one another. We're to have everything in common and share our burdens and struggles with one another. 
We're not a people without hope and forgiveness. We have Jesus who went on the cross and died for our sin. We have Jesus who sits at our side, at God's side, and pleads for us. This book is a real challenge to see things God's way. To see the truth of Romans 8.28 come out in, 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 a, in a person, in the person of Daniel. And I hope that by the time we finish this, that we'll be able to recognise a transformation in the way that we deal with things and the way that we see things. So let's focus on Daniel as this book does. They've been set up in this foreign land. Here they are, this little community of guys living as exiles. And we know that they intend to not reject God. They don't want to compromise on their faith, on their relationship with God. Their attitude, we will see revealed, actually isn't the first attitude that most people would have. And what's that? It would be to whine and get angry about it. When stuff goes wrong, we often just go, you know, we'll get really angry towards God about it. But that's not their first response. That's not the first response to what's going on. Their attitude we see revealed isn't to whine or get angry, but it's to trust that God is in control. And we see that in their ability to do two really important things. The first thing that we see them do is that they cooperate with their situation without compromising on their relationship with God. They cooperate without any compromise. You see this in verse 4. Have a look there. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So this is a description of who these guys were amongst. They are amongst all these people. And they, they were taken to this, to this court official who was going to teach them the language and the literature of Babylonians. So it's a big assimilation program. They're may, being made to basically be a Babylonian. And for the best part, we can tell they go along with it. They don't kick up a stink. They don't say, well, no, that's not what we do. They go along with it. They don't compromise on their relationship with God, but they don't, they don't cause any problems there either. Daniel and his friends just take it in their stride, the changes that they're experiencing. And isn't that a really humble attitude? They're humble in the way that they, they submit to what's going on. They don't reject God at any point in how they act or respond, but they just go on, trusting that whatever's happening to them, that God's got a purpose in it. And then the second thing that we see their ability to do, they're able to cooperate without compromising, but they're also able to live for God without compromising. Live for God in their situation without compromise. And we start to read about this in verse 8, so have a look there with me. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. You see, up until this point, he's gone along. He's been happy to go a part of this program where he's made into a Babylonian. They've all been given Babylonian names. All this stuff's happened to them and it hasn't compromised their religion or their faith in God until this point where they're served up dinner. And they're served up dinner and what's served up for them is actually outside of what the Old Testament law says they're allowed to eat. See, when God gave his people the law to show them how to live, there were clear rules about what food they could eat. 
We're not told what it was that was offered to Daniel and his friends, but the point was that it was outside of God's law what was being offered to them. So they weren't... It was sinful, basically, to eat the foods that um, were put in front of them. Now, it's important to remember, as this sounds a bit strange to us, because as Christians we know that those laws don't really apply. Romans, as, as we heard it and as we studied it, made it really clear that we're not under the law, but we're under God's grace. So don't hear me saying that we've got special food laws that we need to, to think about. I like all foods, as you can tell. So we, we've got to, got to keep this in mind. And Jesus actually made this really clear in Mark chapter 7, verse 15, where he says, in response to this law, nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. But the point here isn't actually the eating of the food. It's Daniel's attitude that's important here. Verse 8, it says there really clearly, Daniel resolved. It says Daniel resolved. This is talking about a decision inside his heart. He's been willing to go along with what's happening up to the point where he's still been able to live for God, but this is outside of living for God, and he's made a decision in his heart that if it's asking him to step outside of what it is to live for God, that he's not going to do it. It would have been just easy to eat what was on his plate. I mean, isn't that the polite thing to do? Isn't that what our parents tell us when we're kids? Just whatever they put on your plate, just eat it. And, you know, isn't he being disrespectful here? Isn't he kicking up a stink? Isn't he just being a whinging vegetarian? No, he's not. He's made a decision in his heart that what's the most important thing for him to do is to follow what God says. Not because particularly he understands it, although he probably did. Not because that food just didn't look edible. But because what's most important to him is following God. Daniel resolved, made a heart decision that that's what he was going to do. Now, in a few weeks, what we're going to see is we're going to see stories that are far greater, far more extreme examples of of compromise and of situations. This crazy King Nebuchadnezzar asking him to bow down at statues that he's made, to bow down at him himself. But Daniel has already won that battle because he's been able to say no in the little things. Can you see that there? He's been able to say no in the small things. And that actually enables him to, to... say no in the big things. Daniel knows that it honours God to do just this little thing, to make this small stand against what's being asked of him. And so he does it. He resolves in his heart that he loves God and that he trusts God. And that even if they're going to kill him for not eating their food, then he's going to do it because it's what God has asked of him. Now what we find out is that they don't kill him for this. He says to the official, I won't eat the food. The official doesn't kill him. And it's because God looks after him. If you have a look at verse 9, you see there that God causes the official to not do what he should have done. See, he should have taken taken Daniel to be disciplined or taken Daniel maybe to be killed. But he goes along with it. It's because of God's doing. Verse 9 says it really clear. God caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. The official, we can actually tell, is scared about this. Read verse 10. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord King who has assigned me your food and drink. 
Why should he see me look, you looking worse than the other young men of your age? Then the king would have my head because of you. This guy was a crazy king. King Nebuchadnezzar was a crazy king. If one of his officials didn't make the young um, guy from Judah eat his food, then he was going to kill him. Yet God caused the official to not do this. God caused the official to show favour to him and let Daniel do what he's requested. And what you see in verse 11 to 14, we won't read it again, but they strike up this deal, how he's going to let them eat the food for, I think it's 10 days. He's going to let eat different food for 10 days and see then if, if Daniel and his friends, if they look any different to, these, to the other people and what they're eating. Because you've got to remember that they're being trained up. They're being trained up to be strong, young, handsome men, is what it says in verse 3. Now these guys, they strike up a deal. In verse 15, we read that it pays off for Daniel and for his friends and for the guard. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. You see, in this situation, God is in control. Verse 17 shows us that God is in control. It says that now that this has happened that they've proven that they, can be, they could be trusted in the small matters and now they can be trusted with big matters of gifts, of wisdom. And Daniel ends up being this great dream interpreter. Verse 19 shows that they come and they actually meet the king and the king looks at them and he says, I want you in my, in my guard. I want you to be one of my servants. He promotes these guys up to being in their, his house. And verse 21 actually shows us that Daniel remained in the king's service for years and years. It says, And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Who's King Cyrus? Well, Cyrus is a king that came well after Nebuchadnezzar was dead and buried. See, Daniel made this really small, really seemingly insignificant stand for what he believed. Yet, look at the result. He's there after Nebuchadnezzar's dead. He's there serving in, in, this, in this kingdom, in this place. And you'll see the great impact as we study Daniel. Romans 8.28 says, In all things God works for the good of those who love him, that he is called according to his purpose. God worked in the official's heart. God worked in their lives to give them wisdom. God worked in the whole nation, taking it into exile. So that his purposes, that good might come to people, would happen. It works for the good of Daniel and his friends who are protected. They grow deeper in their faith. And they come to this point where they're now respected by this king. And the whole nation respects them. God puts this situation together, it seems, so that his purposes can be achieved. And we see later on as Nebuchadnezzar at times comes and he worships God. This evil king comes to the point where he worships the true God. To say God is a sovereign God is a true thing. We've all been given a relationship with Jesus. And if you read Acts chapter 17, Paul's explaining the gospel to people and he says that God determines the times and dates where people live the things that happen to them, so that they might reach out and find him. The things that happen in your life happen so that you can grow a relationship with Jesus. 
God's in control of your life as well. God's in control of my life. And so like Daniel, in the small choices, we can trust that honouring God is the best thing for us to do. We're faced with situations all the time where living for Jesus is going to cost us something, where it's going to cost us something that seems important to us. Just picture this. You're hanging out with some of your mates, okay? Maybe at work or something like that or at at the pub or the club or something. And they start telling jokes and and the jokes start to turn racist or or dirty or something. And you're, you're left with a situation there. Do you just laugh along? Do you just go along with the crowd? Or do you say something about it? Will they reject us or respect us based on our disagreeing? I mean, isn't it easier just to go along with it? Isn't it easier just, you know, it's just a small thing. We can just giggle at that. We're out to dinner with our friends. And they're not Christian friends. They might be, they might not be, but that's not the point. We're out to dinner and we've been having a good time, been drinking some wine. And they go to order another bottle. And you know that if you have any more, that it will be too much for you. It'll be more than you can handle. Do you go along with it? Or do you say no at that point? I mean, it seems like a really little thing. But do we, do, we stay, do we take the stand that we need to? There's a conversation taking place in your workplace. Or it might be down at the bowling club or, or senior citizens or whatever gr- big group you might be, find yourself in. And there's a Christian there. And they're actually they're basically being bullied for what they believe. Why do you go to church? All this kind of stuff. And no one else knows that you're a Christian. Well, what do you do? Do you get in there and back them up? Or do you just like and go, oh, I'll just slip out the back? Final one. Your boss asks you to work a shift that you know is going to mean that you can't get to something that's important like church or like Bible study or some other thing that's going to help your relationship with God. It's going to help you to serve people. It's going to, it's going to get in the way of that. What do you do? And you might think, oh, you know, I'll just take this one. It won't hurt that much. But, you know, it's all those little decisions. Daniel was faced with the decision, well, do I eat what's on my plate? Or do I say, no, that, that's actually not what God says we should eat. So I'm going to take... You, can you see what I mean? It's in the small decisions in life. I want you to have your eyes open to the world around you and look at what those small decisions are because they affect our relationship with God. So Romans 8.28 is as much about loving God as it is about him being in control. It says, for the good of those who love him. And to love God is to actually trust him, to trust that what God says is the right thing is actually the right thing. To trust that God knows better in those small situations and that even in those small situations, it will lead to our good. Trusting that although it might not be the popular thing to do, that God is even in control of things like our relationships and how we get along with people. Loving God's goodness and what he says is right. Being like Daniel and his friends and resolving in your heart, we resolve that we're not going to do that that we're not going to compromise our relationship with Jesus. We're not going to compromise the life of worship and the life of Christian community that he's brought us into. That's the challenge. That's the challenge, isn't it? To make, to say no at those small decisions and to make the right decision at the right time. Let's pray for God's wisdom in that 
and that we would trust in his sovereignty and in what he says is right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're a good God. And Lord, you work things out, Lord, beyond ways that we can understand. And Lord, at times, Lord, things just seem crazy and difficult and make no sense at all. And yet, we can trust that you're good. And Lord, that you bring it about, Lord, so that your will will be done. And Lord, that good will be done in our lives. Lord, we do pray that you help us to be like Daniel and to make um, bold decisions. And Lord, particularly in small things and the insignificant things that don't, don't really come up on our radar all that often. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be so at work in our hearts that we would honour you in all areas of our life. And, yeah, Lord, just that as a community here, Lord, that, that's, that, that we'd be known for loving you and for your goodness. Lord, help us, each of us, to trust, trust you more and more in the ways and areas that we need to. Lord, that we might be more like you. And that, that what Jesus has done for us, Lord, might be, might be even clearer for us in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen.